So I thought we would uh, read Psalm 23 this morning. I don't know if you know the story of Psalm 22, 23, and 24. They're actually a group that goes together. Um, you read about the, uh, the crucifixion in, in Psalm 22. Um, but I thought we would do Psalm 23 because it's actually um, represented in uh, what we celebrate as the Last Supper. Do you want to read out Psalm 23? And so there's a public ministry, and we're coming right to the end of the public ministry right now. 
Uh, and then there's, I call it a private ministry. It's, uh, it's really the uh, prelude to the crucifixion and then the crucifixion uh, account. And you wouldn't think of that as private, but in, in a sense it is, maybe private isn't the right word, but I'll call it personal. Um, and that it's how we relate personally to Christ and his death for our sins. And how he reaches out to us personally, just as he reached out to his disciples uh, personally. And then uh, we have it, the whole thing bookended by an epilogue and, uh, and a prologue. And I can reverse the order of that because that's the way it would be. And I've mentioned that um, the the uh, the public ministry part, the Book of Signs or Miracles, is organized around challenging specific aspects of the institutions of the Jewish religion and the festivals of the Jewish religion. And we went through all of that, and we're now to a point where um, we're at the last week of Jesus's life, and when we started uh, chapter 12, we started it um, on the Friday, March 27, 33 AD, where Jesus arrives at Bethany. In Bethany, he arrived at the house of his friends, Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and uh, we read the account of how Mary uh, prepared him for his burial. So there was, she understood who he was and what he came for. Um, in a very personal way, and uh, gave her best offering to Christ in, in what he was, his mission was to accomplish. We know that there was a, a Sabbath on Saturday, March 28th, and uh, that there was a meal that occurred uh, after sundown with this family. We read about that. That's where that anointing occurred. And then there was the what we call Palm Sunday that immediately followed that where uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey and the people laid down palm branches. What was significant about that? It fulfilled prophecy. It fulfilled prophecy. So that helped us know that this truly is Jesus. Because we have, we have what kind of evidence to support uh, the truth claims about God? We have scripture, that would be prophecy. We also have eyewitness accounts, which are recorded. So those are the, the two basic kinds of evidence. If you were looking at, uh, uh, if you were a lawyer, in fact, Lee Strobel did this. He, uh, uh, from a, a legal, pers uh, legal reporting perspective, he constructed a legal case for Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. And so um, he wrote a book on that. The case for Christ, and he also wrote a book about the case for Easter, and, and so he's taking it from an evidentiary perspective, a legal perspective. How do we know that these things occurred? That it is rational, rational and reasonable, um, the claims, the truth claims that are made about Christ. And this is actually something I was listening this morning to Rabbi Zacharias for just a, just a couple of seconds before I walked in here. And Rabbi Zacharias, if you don't know, is one of the great uh, apologet apologetics um, expounders of our day. He's, a, I'm not sure what you call it, apolog apologician? I don't know. Uh, anyway, so he's a, a great teacher from reason. He argues um, the faith, um, 
very effectively, and he does it in a way uh, that is very gentle and respectful. So he's a guy that would follow First Peter 3.15 very, very faithfully, that he's always ready to give a reason for the hope that is within him with gentleness and respect. And I was listening to what he had to say this morning. He was talking about an article because we're coming up on Easter. So we're going to have all sorts of stuff around Easter coming up. What does the world think about Easter, right? And there's going to be a program on television about the Bible, right? And we're, those of us that are students of the Bible are kind of leery about anything that the world puts up about the truth of the Bible because we think, well, how can they represent Scripture? How can they present, like Lee Strobel did, or Josh McDowell did um, the case for Christ uh, such that people will be compelled to believe that this is reasonable and rational. Um, and it is the best answer for what we observe as truth in the world today. And just because we measure truth by what we observe, that doesn't make it truth. It's important to understand. Truth is truth because it's truth. It's God's truth, and that's what he's declared to be right and good and true. And if we happen to observe it and discover it, that's great. But if we don't, that's our loss. But there are people that make it their mission in life to uh, discover the truth. Well, there was this article that came out in England um, called, Why Do We Care That Christ Was Raised From The Dead? That was the title of the article. And it's uh, two... In, in a, you know, if you, you read that article, you see it has a negative spin on it, right? Or you read the title, you see it's a negative spin on the title. Why do we care that Christ was raised from the dead? Well, it turns out that it's one of those hook-type articles that uh, it starts out with the way the world would, would not care. Who cares that this guy, Jesus, was raised from the dead? And yet it builds the case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he was crucified and raised on the third day, that he died and was raised. And that is very significant to our world today. Um, I love it when an apologist talks about those kind of things. That's what John is doing. John is taking an apologetic approach, helping the world understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And what we're going to see now is we've seen, especially as he got towards the end of his apologetic argument, he is continually asking the question, so do you believe this? Right? Jesus is asking this question. John is framing it for us. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And what? so what if he is? What does that matter? Because we're coming up on the Easter season, and um, this is going to come and go, and maybe it'll be a beautiful day like today. Maybe it'll be raining. Who knows? Um, when Easter occurs, but nonetheless, it is the most significant day in the calendar year that we memorialize that Christ was raised from the dead, that he truly died, and his death had a, a purpose. It was a purpose to save us from our sin and to save us from the consequence of that sin. And that um, he indeed is, as it says here, the light, and he is... Um, the judge, right? So, as you were reading through this last week with Pastor Bob, as we get to this turning point um, where the, the, the demand of the disciples, on the disciples and the listeners to this message is, do you believe? And 
And what we're going to see is that there's a clear division between who believes and who doesn't. And uh, in fact, we read that in verse 42. It says, Nevertheless, even uh, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for truth, they would be put out of the synagogue. So that there were those that are like us, religious people, show up on a Sunday morning for Sunday school, that believed, but they were afraid to say anything. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And I'm not suggesting that that necessarily would describe us, but there are a lot of people that show up for church and do the religious thing. And they may believe, but their, their belief isn't one that would stand a, a, a trial. If they actually had to uh, confess that faith before ISIS today, knowing that that might cost them their life, would they do that? You know, a lot of people wouldn't. Um, and Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me and does not, uh, who, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. So we need to understand that when you hear the message, we're not actual eyewitnesses to Christ's crucifixion and eyewitnesses to his resurrection or eyewitnesses to the prophets. But we have that recorded for us. We have that, that prophetic word recorded and we've seen fulfillment of that throughout history. And we have the eyewitness accounts recorded. And when we accept that testimony about Jesus, we're accepting that testimony about God himself that there's a transference that occurs. It isn't just a, an intellectual ascension to, yes, there was this man Jesus. It's a, a belief in your heart that this man Jesus is the, the God-man. God himself come to save his creation. And that he actually humbled himself and became um, flesh and blood like us. We read about that. Paul expounds on that when we look at Philippians chapter 2, and in Philippians chapter 2, um, Paul's argument is about how we should behave in the presence of, a, of an evil world, what it looks like uh, to be um, a disciple. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2 in Philippians, says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't need to make an argument about his ontology. He was divine from the beginning. And he doesn't have to support that through a genetic test. Right? He is divine. And he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Does anybody know what that name is? Everybody will know what that name is. It's Lord. When we read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it's talking about one called the Son of Man who is presented before the Ancient of Days. 
Let me read that to you, because this all fits together. This is all part of that prophecy. This is all part of what um, John is showing us right now. It says in Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He's the Lord. He's the King of Kings. So, the Almighty God, we, we understand that that's what's wrapped up in knowing who Christ is and in believing the message, and that we're not just believing the message um, about him, we're believing the one who sent him. This is faith in God. And specifically, God's Christ, Jesus. He who sees me, the one uh, sees the one who sent me. Now that really upset the Jews, because um, they that made Jesus God. And uh, they would pick up stones to stone him for that, because they considered that blasphemy. He says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Let's stop right there. What does that mean that he is light in the world? John has this theme of light and dark. You've seen that all the way from the prologue forward. What does that mean that Jesus is the light of the world? The light you can see. Mm -hmm. it, it illumines. So if you're in darkness, you can't see... I mean, if you've ever been in, like, total pitch dark, which is really scary, by the way, like, yeah, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Um, I've done spelunking in caves, and that's one of the things you do. You get really deep in the, in the earth, and you turn off your light, uh, and then let your eyes settle. See if you can see anything. You can't see anything. That's, that's the natural state of man apart from God. We can't see reality. But what light does is it illumines reality. We become enlightened. Right? And that's a good thing. Even though in becoming enlightened, we also see who we are. And that's, a, that's something to be repented of. Because we see the truth about who God is, and we see the truth about who we are. And that demands a response. Right? So people don't like the light. And he says, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So, everything that Jesus spoke is the very word of God. He says that. He, he throughout the course of John, as we've been looking at it, he says, I don't say anything except for what my Father has commanded that I say. Such that if you see him, you see the Father. If you hear him, you hear the Father. So that means the truth of God, which is every word that he speaks, came through Jesus. And that illuminates our world. It shows us what is true, what reality is, and it also creates that, that judgment in us because we find out how far we are from God. So the very declaration of truth, which is your salvation, by the way, 
It's the very thing that condemns you. If you hadn't known the truth, you would just die in ignorance. You would be in total darkness, you would never see your hand in front of your face, and you would pass, and that would be it. But the truth is there. God has revealed himself. And that very revelation puts you in a position where you need to respond. Because you are judged by the truth. And that truth is Jesus Christ. And it, what we understand about God is he's merciful, so that that judgment comes on the last day. Right, so God is withholding judgment until an appointed time. We've all heard about this. Uh, you know, we don't know when that appointed time is, but nonetheless, there is an appointed time. This isn't an indefinite um, withholding of the consequence of that judgment, that judgment being finalized going forward. We know from the very beginning when Adam fell and Eve fell that God was withholding judgment. And his mercy was there. He went looking for them. His grace was present in the Garden of Eden. And he covered them. And he provided a way for them, even though they didn't understand it. We understand that no matter how corrupt humanity became, like the whole thing that happened with Noah, right? that that was God withholding judgment for that appointed day. And that he would allow... Even though it's not his will, his, his perfect sovereign will, that evil exists in his creation, he allowed it for a time. It was his permissive will. So that people could come to salvation. That he would provide a plan of salvation, foretold through the prophets, eyewitnessed by John and his contemporaries, for the salvation of the world. And that even then, he would continue to withhold judgment to our day. But we don't know when is the appointed day, but there is an appointed day. There is a last day. He goes on to say, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and to what to speak. So this is not something that you can dismiss. These are the very words of God coming from heaven to you. That's pretty personal. I know that his commandment is eternal life. So another way of looking at commandment in this case is the will of God. So the will of God for you is life, not death. Now, that, that is uh, unimaginable love to me. That a God who, when we spit in his face and cursed him openly, and, and I would suggest that every person on the face of the earth has done that at least once in their life. No matter how humble and contrite, no matter how much like Mother Teresa you are, um, at some point in your life, you have dissed God. You have rejected Him and chosen your own way. We know that people have personally sinned. It's a result of the corruption that has affected the very innermost part of us, our heart. And so... God, in the, in the light of that, of who we are, his will for us is eternal life, that we would live with him forever. Man, that's the kind of marriage that I imagine as perfect for those that are married and those that are considering marriage. Um, you want a partner, you want 
a husband if you're a wife, or you want a wife if you're a husband, you want a partner in that marriage that will choose you no matter what. Guess what? That's who God is. And that's why he describes himself as a husband to his people. And that his people are like a bride to him. And that he will lay down his life for that bride. That's pretty, pretty precious. That's pretty personal. That's what he, his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So this is the message. This is the gospel. Gospel means good news. What is the good news? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And I'll take you to that in John where he exposes it a little bit more because he speaks about that that judgment. It says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So it's not for judgment or condemnation that Christ came. It's for salvation. But with that salvation, you no longer have the ability to remain in the dark because you're in the light whether you like it or not. You can pretend like in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that if you have your towel and you wrap your towel around your face that you're not, that evil doesn't really exist. Right? You can delude yourself. But that's not reality. The reality is the king has come. And as a result of that, judgment has come with the king. He is the judge. That's, that's just the way it works. But he came for eternal life. That's the end of his public ministry. He's made this declaration. He's asked people to believe. Now he turns to his own. When I say he turns to his own, these are, uh, we read about that uh, Jesus came to his own and they rejected him. He saw that in the prologue, right? In, uh, Yes. The Jewish people. Yep, the Jewish people. And um, in verse 11 in the prologue it says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to, him uh, to, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So he had gone to the, the people of Israel at large. Right? So... A lot of times we think of that as calling it the public ministry. It's kind of the corporate understanding of a people group, right? That they're um, Hebrew children by descent and that they're uh, Jewish in religion by uh, choosing that, right? By, so you're not born uh, a Jew, you're born a Hebrew, right? And then you accept the religion of the, that peoples and become what we call Jewish. Right? So I'm making a distinction between nationality and religion here. And he came to the nation, but then he also came to those that said, no, I believe you. Right? And he said, do you really believe me? What if it costs you to believe? 
Because what I would suggest is all belief requires, it has a cost. It requires something. And so, um, for example, um, again, those of you that are married, and I use my marriage as an example where I chose Karen. And that was an irrevocable choice for me. That means um, no matter what I discover about who Karen is, I still chose her. And I will choose her no matter what happens, no matter how fortunes change, um, because that's, that's what my heart chose. I chose her. Right? And in that, uh, I say that that is, um, yeah, I'm losing my place. <laughs> because I, <laughs> so where was I going? Remind me. Uh, that choice has a cost. Okay, so what that means is that um, it may cost me everything in this world. And that by choosing her and putting her first in my life, rather than me first, I may actually have to surrender my life. So I might have to take the bullet for her. Right? That's what that means. That's what that choice involved. It meant that I was willing to give up everything for that. When you believe in Christ, it has a cost. It means that you no longer get your way. It means that you submit to him as king rather than yourself as king and that you don't just do that when it's convenient but you do it always and forever that's what that means discipleship has a cost we read about that a few weeks back when we were looking at Luke discipleship has a cost that's that is what Jesus is doing right now he's turning to those who have chosen him and he's saying, are you willing to pay the cost? Let me show you who I am. Let me tell you what's ahead. Let me fully expose reality to you. And no matter what you choose, I choose you. That's what Christ is going to say. Let's go ahead and read it. I'll read all the way through chapter 13. This is one of my favorite chapters because you see the transition from the public to the personal. It says, now therefore, the feast of Pas uh, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is true love. He loved them to the end. Or he loved them to the uttermost or eternally. That's how much God loves him. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. Which he was, uh, with which he was girded. 
So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his, uh, his garment and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You called me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But if I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I give you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is uh, that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I, tell, uh, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever sends, whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look at one another at a loss to know which, uh, which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is, for, uh, the, uh, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan had then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews... Now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but I will follow you later, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I... Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So we, we've got in this story, sometimes we call this the, the Last Supper. 
we have the betrayal of Jesus. We have um, the Jesus sacrificing uh, his position to wash the disciples' feet. We have Peter's uh, proclamation, Lord, I believe in you. I'll go even to death, only to have Jesus remind him that no, just a few short hours from now, you're going to deny me three times. What's happening in, uh, in this account? Like I say, I, I think it starts um, with the perfect introduction. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. So where we're at, if we look at the, uh, the week as it progresses, is we're now to Thursday. On Friday, April 3rd, he would be crucified. And that that crucifixion would start about 9 o'clock in the morning. That his trial would be in the wee hours before the sun came up. That it would occur before Pontius Pilate. That he would be um, whipped, flogged within just a hair of his life. I mean, that usually that would kill a person. Um, and then he would be nailed to a cross. And he would be on that cross for the purpose of being there until he died. And it's a horrific thing. So, as we start this account, it says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, he loved his own in the world, to the very end. So we understand that as the week progressed, um, Thursday would have been the, the day of preparation for Passover. So Friday was the actual day of Passover. That would have been the 15th of Nisan, which is the, the month that's prescribed and the day that's prescribed in that month that they would celebrate the Passover. And you remember the story of the Passover, right? The story of the Passover is, is that the children, uh, the Hebrew children are in Egypt, they're enslaved, it gets worse and worse and worse to the point where the only thing that can deliver them from the bondage that they're in is that they would go through the sacrificial death of the firstborn to new life. That's what was going to happen. They were going to be taken out by great force out of the hand of the Egyptians. And that the way that they would um, have their life preserved was through sacrificing uh, an unblemished lamb in their place. And they would put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost, on the, the uh, lintel over the door, and that they would um, then be inside of that home and eat that sacrifice completely. They were to leave nothing left. They were to bring all of their family in. Um, they were to um, celebrate that Passover meal because the next morning they were going to have to leave in haste in Exodus. Right? But they were going to be delivered. So there were two days involved here. The first day, the 14th of Nisan, was the day of preparation where that lamb was selected 
and that lamb was um, sacrificed. And the blood of that lamb was then put on the doorpost. And the, the meal itself was to be eaten on the 15th of Nisan. And we need to understand that they work on, for these holidays, they work on a lunar calendar. So that's why this changes in our uh, solar calendar. We have a solar-based calendar. Um, that's why Easter changes every year, because Passover changes every year. When does that month fall? It's based on the cycle of the moon. And on the 14th of this month, Nisan, is when they were to do the preparation for this. And on the 15th, they were supposed to consume it fully. And the 15th started at sundown. So from our perspective, we look at a day um, from midnight to midnight, right? So the day is bounded by darkness. Their day is bounded by darkness to the end of light. So the beginning of darkness to the end of light. And that would have meant Thursday, the day of preparation for them, would have um, started what would have been our Wednesday night. And that they would have then, uh, throughout Thursday during the light hours of the day, which would have been the 14th, would have been making that preparation. They would have gone and found the lamb, and we read about that in the other gospel accounts. And they would have found a place where they were going to hold this meal. I'll point out where that place was. Um, this is based on tradition. So this is, uh, this is a, a picture of a model of uh, first century Jerusalem. This is the wall that goes around the city. This is the Temple Mount back here. Over on this side over here is uh, <clears throat> where Pilate was. That was his palace. Um, right here is the city of David, and I've shown you different pictures where during different parts of the ceremonies they go from the Pool of Siloam down here up through the water gate and make their sacrifice on the, on the Temple Mount. Well, it was a rule that when you uh, took this Passover meal that you needed to take it in Jerusalem. This is one of the great feasts. And so that meant that you had to essentially be within the walls of the city when you would take this meal. Now, once you had taken the meal, um, it just so happened because this was on a Thursday night when they would have taken the meal, which would have been the day of Passover. So Thursday night through Friday until sundown would have been the day of Passover. But this was a special Passover. This was a Passover that occurred on the preparation for the Sabbath. So that meant that that day of preparation, they had to get everything done on the day of Passover such that they could celebrate the Sabbath the very next day. So this was a special Passover this year. That's how we know it was 33 AD. Because it met all the conditions where this particular day where uh, Nisan the 15th would have happened on a, on a Friday, which would have been the day of preparation for the Sabbath. And that meant that they couldn't travel very far from the city in order to accomplish all this. So what you're going to read about from chapter 13 of John through chapter 19 of John all happens within this area right here. Um, with the exception that they go down out the eastern gate and come up over here to a garden of Gethsemane, which is just a stone's throw, literally, if you look at the way the, the valley there is, the Kidron Valley, um, from the eastern gate of the Temple Mount to this garden. 
that would have been on the Mount of Olives. And that all we're going to see occurs in this area. And where the Last Supper most likely occurred. So this is an area today where when we go to Israel um, next April, um, or a year from April, uh, the Jerusalem University College is right here. It's actually within this part of the city wall. And you can actually see the ancient wall as one of the supporting walls within the, the facility there today. And that the Last Supper is now, uh, it's got, they built, you know, churches over everything, right? So uh, in the, the eras that followed, they built a big church here, Church of the Last Supper. Um, so it would have occurred here. But this is probably... Um, the house of Barnabas is where it occurred. So Barnabas was one of those, like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea, a man of uh, means, a man of influence and power. Um, he was not in the Sanhedrin. He wasn't like Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee. But Barnabas was uh, a man of, of wealth. And so uh, he had a, a nephew named Mark. You know as the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark, right? And we know what happened with Barnabas and Paul and John Mark and, and that whole deal. Well, Mark, uh, John Mark, was probably, as we read the account of this, this uh, uh, time in the other Gospels, he was probably the young boy that was, uh, he lost his cloak during the arrest and had to run away naked. Um, that was probably John Mark. So he was probably there at the Last Supper at Barnabas' house, and this occurred in, and Barnabas, being a man of wealth, would have been in this part of the city, because this is the wealthy part of the city. That's where the people that had money lived. In fact, uh, Herod's uh, compound, when he was in Jerusalem, was just right over here, just inside the gate, the Joppa Gate. So, um, and you can go to all those places, Today, most of them have something built on top of them, so you got to remember this was all destroyed by the Romans. Yeah. Um, so back to your theory on the dates, mm -hmm. which I mean, it's actually a biblical, right? Right. But, um, so you're saying that the Last Supper would have been on a Wednesday night? It would have been on a Thursday, uh, Thursday night. Thursday so night. that would have been actually the day of Passover. Yeah, Friday uh, between 9 and 3 p.m. 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. was so the time. It doesn't day. work for three days. Pardon me. So, so the end, the end of Friday, would have occurred at sunset. 4 p.m. or 6 p.m. Yeah, 6 p.m. And it was important that they got Jesus off the cross because Saturday at sunset on our Friday would have been the beginning of Sabbath. Sabbath on Sunday? Pardon? Right. Sabbath on, it starts Friday night. Friday night. Saturday. Right, I understand that. So they want him off for the Sabbath. Right, so, so Sabbath, he died on Friday, this on the 15th. He was buried before sunset, which would have been this on the 16th, which would have occurred at, let's say sunset happened at 6. Would have been 6.01, would have been the beginning of Sabbath, would have been the 16th. We would, in our mind, we still call that the 15th. Yeah. So you call that day two. That is day two. That's the way they count. That's the way, that's the way it counts. Because it's night, or sunset, or sunset. Right. Okay. 
And then, of course, Sunday morning would have been right. the third day. Correct. And so the third day would have started at sunset on Saturday. So, I mean, I've always heard that there was a special Sabbath, and so, you know, the crucifixion could well have been on Thursday. Thursday, right. Um, you know, and then you get to three days. But what you're saying is if you count it, even you get three days back right. on Friday and Sunday. Right. And, and so, so the reason we have this idea of three days and three nights, there is one verse in the Bible that says three days and three nights. And that's the sign of Jonah. Right? But in all of the others, it says about three days. Or three days. It doesn't say, it doesn't say three days and three nights. So when we have interpretive questions like this, we want to look at what the the analogy of faith. We want to look at the larger body of Revelation and what fits that larger body is the cycle of days and nights using the, the Jewish way of reckoning and that it would have been on the third day that Christ was raised from the dead rather than after the third day. If you went three days and three nights it would have been on the fourth day. So we use a Jewish reckoning. After the third day. Yeah, it would have been after the third day. So uh, and, and there's debate maybe the crucifixion was on Thursday because trying to resolve this problem of how could it be a special Passover because it was on the preparation for the Sabbath so the preparation for the Passover was Thursday the uh, Passover was Thursday night at sunset to Friday night at sunset and then the Sabbath was from Friday night at sunset to sunset to Saturday night at sunset. So does that make sense? So that's what I'm suggesting. Now there are others that will put different chronologies out there. And nobody knows for sure. Because uh, the, the Western historians were not there taking notes uh, <laughs> as they do today. They, would have been, they surely would have had the cup cash blood. Right, they would have had they would have had their iPhones up and all taken yeah. back. But um, <laughs> as historians, yes, I've got Josephus out of our new church library, right there. Um, and uh, he does mention in one place where he talks about Jesus. Yes, or a paragraph. So saying that he, he, you know, he died, and was crucified, and rose again. Yeah. So, so here's an independent. Let me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And and that's the thing. See, we we tend to organize things as chronologies. That's the way Western history works. Um, Eastern history organizes things thematically. So they organize it by theme. And and they're not so concerned with you know Roman counting or Jewish counting. Let me point out two other things. So here we are. In uh, this is the Temple Mount. Um, this is the City of David. Right in here is where the Last Supper was. Um, if you just look a couple of slides further here, here is um, Herod's palace. This is the Temple Mount again. This is the temple. Um, this is the formal gate of the city right here. So Jesus was crucified outside the gate. And he would have been on trial here and been, um, been flogged in, in this palace area. That's where they put the thorn, crown of thorns on and 
whipped him so horribly, he would have carried his cross from here through what today is called the Via Della Rosa, out through this gate to, there's, I don't know if you can really see it, but there's some rocks here. It's a, it's a rocky outcropping. And um, that was an area called Golgotha, and it was outside the gate of the city. And that he would have been crucified there. Um, on, and I actually have close-ups of this. This, again, is a model. Because what happened is, when Christianity became the state religion under Constantine, um, I can't remember if it was Constantine's mother or somebody, came in and uh, took this down to bare ground. They actually removed the rock and built a church on top of it. Because that's how they preserved uh, the history. That, so today, we like, don't touch it, you know, put a fence around it, make sure that nobody can fly over it with a plane or enter <laughs> it, all this stuff, right? No, they would build a church on top of it. They would actually remove, <laughs> their, build a church there, and that's how they built it. Um, and so that's why today, if you go there, it's now within uh, the Ottoman wall, which actually is pretty close to where this wall is. Um, you go in, there's a church there. And you can actually, there's a hole in the, in the floor of the church, and they have different eastern and western uh, church fathers that alternate who gets to polish the rock. And you can actually put your, hole, your hand through the hole and touch the rock. But it's not likely the top of that hill is what they what's left that the rock. Pardon? How many touch the rock? Uh, you know, I'm not into icons. And, yeah, I mean, to me... It's all a memorial, right? Because I'm Baptist. I'm Baptist theology. They're not. They're not saying that it's So, so we need to understand this. So, and a lot of us in this room come from a Baptist theological background, which means that these things are memorials for us. They don't have magical power. There's no uh, power in the sacrament. The bread and the wine don't become the body and the blood of Christ. Rather, they memorialize Christ shedding his blood for us, which is what we read about here. Right? Um, so that's how our theology is based. We have certain biases and presuppositions, and I will not apologize for my Baptist presuppositions. I will tell you what the other presuppositions are and why I think Baptist, Baptist theology is the best answer. Um, but again, we have, you know, we, everybody has presuppositions in how they interpret interpreted judgments. I also have presuppositions in how I interpret when and where this occurred. And those presuppositions are based on having actually been to that part of the country and, um, and have studied scholarly work, which there are a lot of disagreements over what day this was. And why do we care what day it was? The most important thing that happened was that Jesus rose from the dead. He was really dead. That's what Paul said. He said, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. So he's bringing out his, his evidence, and was seen by a whole lot of people. In other words, he was buried, and they made sure that he was buried. They posted a guard, and they put a rock in front of it. Right? He was really dead, and on the third day, he was raised for our new life. He was raised for our justification. And that um, it was witnessed by the scripture, it was according to scripture, and it was seen by over, in that case, he gave 500 folk. So, um, and that's, that's the gospel message. So I, I said the gospel is that God wants to bring us life. 
That's the good news in the gospel. When you read how that occurred, where is that captured? Paul says, says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance, the most important thing that you've got to consider in Christianity, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, and some have died. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born. He appeared to me also. I heard the last of that. So, um, we did make it through one verse of chapter 13. <laughs> but we talked all around it. Um, so let's go ahead and, and close here this week. So we're going we're gonna to take a closer look because one of the things I want you to consider is that Jesus knew that Judas, although he said he believed, and he was in a place of honor, he was at Jesus' left hand at this dinner. Judas, who would betray him, Jesus loved him to the end. Jesus gave his life for Judas, but Judas did not believe. So, let's go ahead and close here. Lord, we thank you for opportunity to uh, come to you this morning to study your word, um, to explore uh, some of the things that can trip us up, like what day did this occur on, and um, what was the order of these events. And Lord, we know that that is important because it helps us to understand the reasonability um, and the believability of our faith, that that which we believe truly is reasonable. Um, and it is the best explanation. So, but that alone is not sufficient, that we still need to um, believe which costs us. It costs us, um, it costs us everything, but to give our life, to gain it, is, as the Bible says, is, is such an incredible gain that it's only a fool who would try and keep his life only to lose it, but we, giving our life, gain eternal life in you. Lord, um, we thank you for that, even though it is a cost of discipleship. Um, Lord, we thank you that we have that opportunity to, that you did choose us, that you do love us, that we can um, choose you back. We love you because you loved us. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we ask that you would go with us today, that you would go with us into the morning service, that you would go with us into our communities that we have stomp in daily, our jobs, our social groups. Lord, help us to be light as you are light in the world. Help us to be uh, your light through us. And uh, Lord, that many would be saved. We know that you're withholding judgment for that purpose. Lord, uh, we ask that you provide for us and protect us and keep us. Lord, we thank you so much for your service for us and your death on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.